Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom, and we're recording this conversation on Wednesday, the 15th of November. My guest today is Bechnam Ben Tablu, who is joining us from Washington, D.C. Uh, Benham, welcome. Very welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, just by way of background, as we uh, as we do on these on the podcast, I'll do a quick uh, bio and then bring you bring you in for the conversation. But Bechnam is a senior fellow at the FDD, which is the Foundation of the Defense of Democracies, a leading think tank in Washington, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. As a native Farsi speaker. He, Bechnam is an expert in a range of Iranian-related topics, included security issues, nuclear proliferation, and on the IRGC, as well as internal Iranian politics. Perhaps we can start, and you can describe the facets of the relationship between Iran and Hamas and Islamic Jihad prior to the events of October the 7th. Uh, absolutely. Um, so the most important thing to note about uh, some of the groups that you had mentioned, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, those are Sunni Palestinian terror groups that are rejectionist, if not genocidal outright, as their charter mentions, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the Jewish state. Uh, but it needs to be contextualized and fed into this larger constellation of groups that uh, your audience has been hearing about uh, for several weeks now, and even for several years now, uh, when trying to make sense of the Iran threat in the region. There is basically a constellation of forces, proxies, terror groups, militias, uh, in many of the battlefields in the modern Middle East today, that the Islamic Republic calls the axis of resistance. <clears throat> it's a politically uh, loose order, but it's cohesive in the sense that they are rejectionist forces, rejection of the, you know, the balance of forces in the region, rejection of the status quo in the region, revisionist in their overall approach to, uh, you know, the maintaining the pillars of order, you know, the pro-American, pro-Israel, pro-Saudi kind of moderate bloc uh, in the Middle East that has uh, for several decades now tried to ensure peace and stability. And in essence, they're looking to overturn that order uh, using military force. And the reason I mentioned uh, amid war zones is because the message, the revolutionary message, the you know the ideology for export of the Islamic Republic, it has most resonance, not when there is peace, not when there is stability, not when there is prosperity, uh, but in fact when there is chaos, because the Islamic Republic can manage that chaos to effectuate or achieve uh, some of its foreign policy ends. And in this instance, there are places uh, like Iraq with the Badr Corps, for instance, groups that Iran has created. Uh, like Hezbollah in Lebanon, groups that Iran has created. But when you look at the Palestinian theater, those are groups and causes that the regime has co-opted. The same could be said, of course, for the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, these two were co-opted. And when you have a local actor in a jurisdiction uh, far away, whether that be in Iraq, in Yemen, in Syria, in Lebanon, or in the Palestinian territories, uh, you essentially have a local actor that is shooting at a target that you too, the foreign patron, the Islamic Republic, wish to shoot at as well. So what Iran has been able to do is to harness the hatred and the animosity and the willingness to use violence by Hamas, as well as by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, who it more directly kind of uh, inspired, if you want to even use that phrase, whereas Hamas was a more violent Muslim Brotherhood offshoot, um, 
that that people know about from the late 80s on into the 90s rejection of this rejection of the peace process and through iran's sustained political material and financial support of these groups into the 1990s was able to be a spoiler for peace and the islamic republic began to do more than just use these groups kind of sporadically it became more instrumental elements of iranian power particularly the islamic republic's power i should say uh, against israel in and in the levant Whereas Hezbollah in the north, Lebanese Hezbollah, <clears throat> would pose a conventional deterrent, would be a knife that the regime was sharpening against the neck of the Jewish state through the provision of more advanced Iranian equipment and capabilities. Uh, what they were doing with the proxies in the south was making sure that geographically, demographically, Israel would not be able to be at peace. And the strategy that the Islamic Republic has used uh, to take the material support, the political support, the financial support to the next level that it gives Hamas is to run a death by a thousand cut strategy. And that's why you've seen the boom and bust cycle uh, of violence coming out of Gaza uh, since Israel evacuated it in 2005, since it was fully handed over, since Hamas came in in 2006, since the election slash coup afterwards. Um, you've seen Iran try to find a jurisdiction and indeed do find a jurisdiction for those rejectionist terror groups. Uh, again, arm them, train them, equip them, but also starting in 2014 after that cycle, uh, help them indigenize, select long-range strike capabilities, particularly rockets. There are other things that continue, uh, we assess, uh, given their uh, foreign origin, to be coming in through smuggling routes, be they sea or over land, or perhaps even underland uh, by the tunnels. The uh, Islamic Republic from so far away continues to be able to maintain uh, the support of this local actor. So Hamas is a local actor. The regime has co-opted. It's part of the acts of resistance. Uh, both Hamas and the Islamic Republic want to fire at the same person. And through the regime's material support to this group has been able to effectuate its foreign and security policy aims. Because we all know when the Islamic Republic says death to Israel, it means it. And on October 7th, you saw precisely how it meant it. Indeed. Um, now, there's a debate in Israel about how much the Iranians knew about the details um, or was directly involved in the planning of the attack. What's your take on that? Uh, in this sense, I think it's helpful to know more about the nature of the axis of resistance than to be, whether in Washington, in London, in Jerusalem or elsewhere, the intelligence officer that is looking for the intercept of the go order, if you will, from the Supreme mm. Leader to the Supreme National Security Council via potentially some of the IRGC and the Quds Force to these groups or perhaps to the command headquarters where there's Palestinian groups, Hezbollah and the IRGC in Lebanon all the way on down. Looking for that chain of transmission, I think, would be a mistake. Not only would it be a mistake for intelligence organizations that miss the training and the equipping and the rehearsing of the attacks that led, of, of the moves that led to October 7th in the first place, and I mean that with respect, but beyond that, it would not be helpful because it would fail to understand the nature of the axis of resistance. If you have a local actor that is willing on its own to do something that achieves your strategic objectives as a foreign patron, what really matters there is less the politics and more the material support and more the capability. And that's where you've seen the Islamic Republic continue to surge and continue to be more than just the patron, but the big brother. 
And in particular, when we saw drama, even a falling out, some would say, uh, between Hamas and the Islamic Republic, given the early days of the Arab Spring and the moving of Hamas from Syria uh, into Qatar and the potential for Iran to lose a Sunni terror group in its largely Shiite axis of resistance, uh, you've seen the Islamic Republic stand back, do an ecumenical approach to these kinds of groups, do a bear hug, and after 2017, reincorporate and rehabilitate Hamas directly back into this axis of resistance. And again, that sticky, re that, that rehabilitation, that connective tissue is brought to you by the fact that local actor and foreign patron share a similar, but perhaps not exactly the same ideology, but want to bring it about the same way, which is through violence. And in this sense, uh, the non-smoking gun, for lack of a better word, the absence of the go order being found as an intelligence intercept or whatever other method is in and of itself the smoking gun, because that is why the regime has this proxy strategy to begin with. It is to not aid in attribution, it is to hinder attribution. It is to impede the inference of causality between patron and proxy. Uh, we have two very diverse schools of thought about this proxy network. There is, you know, the Washington kind of lingo uh, about proxy networks that the patron and the proxy have direct ties, you know, immediate command and control, clear and clean like a Western military. And then you have largely academic theories uh, about the principal agent problem, about a foreign principal and a local agent, and that over time, the local agent, uh, because of its capabilities, uh, because of its closeness to the target, will actually have in reverse more influence over the foreign patron and will get more agency and the leash will have to grow longer and longer. Uh, both views are extremes. The answer is somewhere much more in the middle. It's a two-way street. Mm. It's an open conversation. And again, when both of them say death to Israel, they mean it. And the Islamic Republic is the one who has helped put the capabilities in the hands of Hamas to effectuate it the way we saw on October 7th. So forgive me for the roundabout way of having to describe that, but the very kind of over-empirical approach of disconnecting the dots and looking for one thing only and building a case around one intercept uh, will not and indeed should not apply here. Right. I mean, I want to come on and talk in a, in a moment about some of it around the role of other proxies of, of Iran's and that uh, that nature of kind of client-state client, uh, relationship is very interesting. Um, but just to dwell on one other thing you mentioned about the uh, kind of the distinction that the Palestinian groups are the only Sunnis as part of this axis. Do you think that that makes a difference to the Iranians' calculation in terms of kind of how they're prepared to see um, Palestinians die for their own cause as opposed to concern that they would have over protecting other Shiite proxies? Uh, in this sense, I'm I'm much more confident in the track record of the ecumenicalism of the Islamic Republic, of the, of the willingness to push past those labels because of proximity. This is really the real estate uh, motto of location, location, location. Because the Palestinians mm. are on the fault line uh, of Iran's uh, you know major ideational adversary, uh, Israel, uh, it, it need not matter what their orientation is. Yes, there are attempts to move even beyond Gaza. You know, I'm sure you're very familiar with and your audience is very familiar with violence 
uh, in Judean Samaria via the West Bank, via arms smuggling networks, via intel operations the regime has tried to effectuate more recently to get a potential counter foothold. There was even a talk a few years ago of the Islamic Republic trying to set up a smaller Shiite militant organization also among the Palestinians. But largely, this is a place where ecumenicalism takes the hold. And it's this ecumenicalism that has also provided Iran with uh, given Iran this ability to provide al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda which was moving from Afghanistan westward after mm. after the 9-11 terror attacks and after the U.S. war in Afghanistan, uh, which NATO did support. It was that uh, willingness to be ecumenical, the willingness to kind of divide up targets uh, to, in essence, uh, give laissez-passe to a group like al-Qaeda, which in the past uh, was sheltered by the Taliban, and the Taliban in the past did indeed uh, you know, kill Iranian diplomats. But when you allow the clock to be, uh, you you zoom out of the picture, you let you run the clock, you look at in 1998, Iran losing uh, diplomats to the Taliban to the 2009, 2010, 12 uh, to present, Iran materially supporting the Taliban because uh, of, of the Taliban uh, leading the fight against US forces there. The same logic again, transposed onto the, the Sunni groups uh, that Iran supports, like Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas, because of the nature of the shared targets. This is ideational for sure, but this is ideational within, for lack of a better word, a Game of Thrones kind of context. Thank you for thank you for that. Um, if we look to Israel's northern border now, and obviously Hezbollah joined the fighting pretty much on the on the on the second day, on the eighth of October, but so far they've limited their aggression. To kind of to directly across the border. Um, one explanation I've heard from analysts here is that the objective is to to provoke and, uh, and keep the IDF biz busy, but not necessarily to escalate it further on Iranian instructions. Uh, and again, one other interpretation is that uh, the Iranians see Hezbollah as their insurance policy in case further down the road they are attacked by Israel, America, or whoever, and therefore they may be disincentivized to fully commit to Hezbollah attacking Israel right now. Do you think that's credible? Where do you see uh, Hezbollah's uh, agenda leading us? Uh, I'd largely agree with that. And then again, it's worth zooming out for some context here. Uh, Hezbollah was not created uh, to merely bail out uh, Iran's Palestinian proxies. Yes, its firepower uh, is helping drain away political attention, resources, and capital uh, away from a different front, uh, forcing the Israelis not to, yet to have to fight on a two-front war formally, but to have to consider the widening possibility of a multi-front operation. And indeed, even with the weapons that uh, Hezbollah is firing, drones, IRAMs, uh, shorter-range rockets, and indeed anti-tank weapons, anti-tank missiles, uh, mm. it is causing a loss of life. Uh, it is causing people to flee. It is causing major logistical, economical issues in the North. And that's not even the full barrage. But the reason the full barrage, that larger arsenal of 120 to 150 to almost under 200,000 plus uh, mortars, rockets, and missiles, those missiles being the precision-guided munitions that Iran has been trafficking and the guidance and control technology that Iran has been trafficking for well over half a decade, if not a decade, via a land bridge from Iran to Iraq to Syria to Lebanon uh, to get them to take rockets, which are essentially unguided, make them more lethal, make them more uh, precise weapons uh, with these guidance and control kits that basically turn, as BICOM has written brilliantly in the past, a ZLZL2 rocket into a de facto Fateh 110 short-range ballistic missile. 
that's kind of been the goal here. But that arsenal mm. is not meant to be expended just yet. That arsenal, in my view, and as you very succinctly said, is designed to be that conventional deterrence policy against Israel uh, in the attempt of an Israeli overt kinetic strike uh, by the IAF and IDF against Iran's nuclear facilities or larger regime installations on their territory. And one could even say the lack of an overt kinetic strike from 2006 to present by Israel against these facilities is not just because of the politics between the U.S. and Israel, the fact that there was a JCPOA at some point, uh, some of the logistical challenges of the operation. One reason was, and in my view still remains, that potential uh, for another Lebanon war, uh, something Israel would have to take very seriously because it would bring online much larger, more dangerous elements of this arsenal. Uh, and in essence, that kind of conventional deterrence still holds. So when you look at Nasrallah's speech, uh, Secretary General of Hezbollah Nasrallah's speech, it very closely mirrored Khamenei's speech, Supreme Leader Khamenei's speech in Iran, where they don't take credit for the attack, but they support the idea of the attack and they support the idea of people fighting against Israel. And in practice, given the proximity, given the location, that has translated to the nature of the graduated escalation that we've seen from Hezbollah to present. It's, for lack of a better word, a new normal, but it's a new normal that Hezbollah continues to revise. And here is where I have to say, unfortunately, uh, the language in the transatlantic community, especially analytically, has been poor when looking at uh, Hezbollah because it's been monadic. It's been as if it's a light switch. Will Hezbollah intervene? Yes or no? Did Hezbollah enter? Yes or no? It's not monadic. It's very much a volume knob from a two to a three to a four to a five. It's really more of a measure uh, of their escalation. Uh, and thus far, you see them uh, holding back some of those capabilities for fear of losing, uh, again, local actor agency, local interests, but also these local uh, interests marry up with the foreign patrons' interests because Iran does not want to see Hezbollah totally defeated and this arsenal totally gone. It is merely trying to instrumentally use it to affect the political outcome, which is a distraction for Israel and for over time political handcuffs to be put on Israel by the nature of the war having to go on longer and longer and a responsible state like Israel having to consider these other multi-front scenarios. So on, thank you. On, on from multi-front scenarios, we've also seen some sporadic rockets from the from the Houthis in Yemen, as well as the uh, the Shiite proxies in uh, in Syria across the firing across the border, and and other kind of U.S. allies positions. The U.S. forces have been attacked, I think, dozens of times by other other proxies from from Iraq. Um, what's kind of that fits into the picture of what you've already told us but what else can you tell us about kind of their their capacity and i know you're also an expert on the uh the tech and on the missiles itself what tell us tell us about the uh the houthis in particular and their capacity to uh to fire at israel so this is where there has been a marriage of intention and capability uh, and this is, again, why we have to take the adversary at least at their word, or at least understand what their words mean, and that the people who are saying them actually have interests, actually have agency. They're not merely mirrors reflecting something back onto us. It would be ethnocentric for anybody in America, in Europe, uh, in the Middle East, to think that these are merely reflections of a pre-established order. And I'm saying that because the Houthis, since as early as 2017... Uh, had expressed their interest to intervene in a military conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis or between Lebanese Hezbollah and Israel. That's 2017. 
uh, they have re-upped this threat several times. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Israelis were cognizant of the growing ranges of Houthi long-range strike technology. There was even a story, I think, circa the heyday of the Abraham Accords, when uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's plane was slated to fly to Israel, it had to take a, a slated to fly from Israel to the UAE, and had to take a slightly different route, given pre-planned concerns over Houthi ballistic trajectories. So all of this kind of existed in a series of footnotes or disconnected or unconnected dots. And I think it's high time analytically we connect those dots. The Houthis are a group, not that the Islamic Republic created, but has co-opted with the provision of this long-range strike technology. You saw 2017, 2018, 2019, short range and by US military standards, short range. So over 300 kilometers, but under 1000 kilometers, uh, liquid propellant ballistic, ballistic missiles being fired from the Houthis at both civilian and military targets and even uh, residential areas. Uh, multiple times uh, during the, the Yemen war. Uh, the Houthis, as you know, took over the capital 2014-2015, and that's when this material support from the Islamic Republic surged in. They also have drones, suicide drones, which function essentially as the poor man's cruise missile. The Islamic Republic has helped grow their range of some of these drones, uh, drones now that could strike Israel. I know we're recording today uh, in, uh, in November on the 15th. Uh, just a few hours ago, the U.S. Navy intercepted yet another drone uh, going over the Red Sea from the Houthis uh, towards most likely southern Israel, towards most likely Eilat or, or somewhere around there. Uh, so this is a threat that is slated to grow. And the Houthis, until very recently, were one of the only proxies, if not the only proxy, now there are some Shia militias boasting something similar, that had land attack cruise missiles. Uh, there was a report in 2017 or 2018 about an attempted strike on a UAE nuclear reactor using land attack cruise missiles. There were several cross-border attacks, airport attacks using land attack cruise missiles. In January, February 2022, there were attacks on the UAE again, fortunately intercepted with land attack cruise missiles, but also an upgraded liquid propellant ballistic missile of medium range. The first time we saw medium range, meaning over 1,000 kilometer ballistic missile fired from the Houthis uh, towards the target in Eastern province, Saudi Arabia, was August 2019. Then again, you saw uh, a modified version of that munition uh, fired in January, February 2022, fortunately again intercepted um, uh, at, at, at targets in the UAE associated with the US force presence and again associated with international airports. Um, then again, in September, uh, you saw the Houthis unveil more military technology in annual military parades held in Sana'a. And in September of this year, uh, really about a couple of weeks before uh, the October 7 terrorist attack, you saw the Houthis unveil yet another newer, clean, if you will, carbon copy of a medium-range liquid-propellant ballistic missile that is capable of carrying a nuclear weapon. And it has a triconic or sometimes popularly called baby bottle warhead on the head, uh, on the warhead uh, of this missile. And uh, this is something the Houthis have paraded. They call it the Tufan. The Iranians call it the Qadr. The Qadr is an updated and stretched Shahab 3, which is an updated North Korean Nodong A, which was Iran's first ever medium range nuclear capable ballistic missile. Uh, and you can see through the provision of these capabilities, the ability for Iran's proxies to grow the range fans of Iran's missiles. So when one talks about some of these missiles, one has to seriously consider that Iran also has an arsenal in exile and that there is a 
newfound geography to Iranian power in the region that is personified by these very diverse arsenals of these proxies and partners of the Islamic Republic that mean fundamentally different things, less room for maneuver, more room for contestation uh, against U.S. forces and against Israel and against any other adversary of the Islamic Republic and this axis of resistance. So they have an intent, they have a capability through select strikes of ballistic missiles, land attack cruise missiles, and suicide drones that can go up to 2,000 kilometers several times now. The Houthis have acted on it, and I would expect more, unfortunately, not less attack by the Houthis uh, against uh, civilian targets in southern Israel as Iran tries to bring more of this proxy network online. This is very much a rehearsal, not the full thing, but this is very much a rehearsal in my view of can Iran bring on different elements of its proxy network to support the others, to bail out the others. That's certainly not the Hezbollah goal, but about far-flung ones like the Houthis, it's an open question. The Assad regime, it's certainly a question. And with a very different target, this time not Israel, but the U.S. force presence, it is something we're certainly seeing with the Shia militia groups uh, along the Iraq-Syria border. So you mentioned the, uh, the 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 nuclear potential for nuclear capacity. I wanted to ask you about that kind of inside inside Iran. Uh, there is a concern, I suppose, that with the world distracted or focused on what's happening uh, here in Israel and 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 Gaza, that this could be an optimum time for Iran to go for breakout and cross the nuclear threshold. Um, do you share that concern? Where do you think uh, Iranian enrichment and nuclear proliferation currently stands? It's certainly a concern I have, you know, one does understand that even the one has to intonate what the type of private uh, deliberations or debates are within the corridors of power in Tehran. But the way you can do that is by understanding the nature of the public ones. And uh, under uh, the past few years, uh, while U.S. President Joe Biden has been in office, there actually was uh, reports of an open letter that a, a former nuclear negotiator and ultra, ultra hardliner, Saeed Jalili, who also had a failed presidential bid a while back, uh, wrote a letter essentially that we now know calling for enrichment to 90% purity, pushing away from multilateral talks, but kind of privately openly holding the uh, privately semi uh, holding the door open for talks with America to leverage uh, the production of weapons grade uranium. Uh, in some kind of final end-all, be-all diplomatic resolution uh, with a nuclear shadow or nuclear specter uh, behind it uh, against the U.S. So the potential for people to weaponize even for political purposes is there. But what we've seen in slow motion in terms of behavior from 2021 to present is more uh, of a stockpile, a stockpile growing in qualitatively dangerous ways where there is irreversible capability, the practicing of, of enriching to 60% purity, the enriching to 60% purity. These are moves that I think uh, a decade and a half ago, even well before the JCPOA or the JPOA, the interim deal even, uh, were even being conceived of. These were things that one would have assumed would have been red lines for military action. And the problem is the, the adversary understands this. And they see this constant dampening or, or make it rendering pink of formerly passed red lines. And if you were a risk tolerance security planner in Tehran, you might say there is a string of attacks that we have never been held accountable for. Uh, we have been able to successfully push the envelope on the nuclear file. While America, while Israel, while others are distracted, while we have moved the center of gravity away from regional unity against Iran towards regional division and with the least common denominator of the Palestinian cause manifesting itself again, would it now be an opportune time? 
I certainly th don't think the debate is as monadic or that being the only voice in the private kind of corridors of power in Tehran, but I would, I don't think it would not be a voice that is being heard. Uh, I'm sure it is being said. If it is that being acted on is an altogether different matter. Uh, there is another IEA uh, board report expected before the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S. There's reports of a, a still growing stockpile uh, of enriched uranium there. Uh, so obviously the threat uh, continues to be one that the regime is building by inching or creeping along towards. Uh, but I think at this point in time, uh, the regime is really kind of cementing and underscoring multiple times its capability to be a threshold state. And that will have, again, more effects for the regime's risk tolerance with this proxy and partner network and with its pr production, procurement, and proliferation of some of the missiles that we talked about today. Um, if I can change a uh, pivot and now go the other way and kind of come closer to your home, I'd love to get your assessment kind of sitting in uh, in D.C. I mean, I'll, st I'll start from the other way around and say the Israeli perspective is that uh, President Biden may have proved himself the most supportive Zionist U.S. president ever, certainly kind of arriving so soon after the after the conflict began, moving the uh, the aircraft carriers off to Israel's coast. I just wanted to get your assessment of how the uh, Biden administration is dealing with not only the uh, the kind of the Gaza situation, but also the wider threats that we've just been discussing. Uh, while I think the rhetoric and the reality, the reality being the moving of uh, the alerting of more troops, the prepositioning of more assets, the moving in again of another carrier strike group, of another nuclear powered uh, submarine, the clear kind of military signaling to the Islamic Republic, the reports about the other kind of diplomatic signaling as well, the high level public stuff about trying to keep Hezbollah on the sidelines while Israel goes against Hamas and Gaza. All of this stuff is, I think, very helpful. It's very reinforcing. It's very positive to see from voices you hear and I hear in Israel. This is stuff that is indeed greatly welcome. But when you look at, obviously, you know, U.S. history in the past, you can also have a president who may not be sympathetic uh, with the Jewish state, but, but for strategic reasons, obviously, uh, would do more than their fair share uh, to assist, particularly during a time of war. You know, President Nixon comes to mind, given the deplorable things he said about Jews on tapes privately. But again, the airlift in 73, particularly after a strategic surprise, the airlift that is called the airlift that saved Israel. Um, so one has to also kind of temper uh, the assessment of Biden in the moment with this larger history of how the U.S. has been able to stand with Israel, both in principle and in practice, uh, over the past half century. Uh, zooming out to connecting those dots, to looking at not just the proxy, Hamas, but the patron, the Islamic Republic, there I think, most unfortunately, the U.S. has significant room for improvement. Uh, there continues to be this flirtation with the idea of nuclear diplomacy, and in the absence of the political space for nuclear diplomacy, again, to resurrect or recreate the JCPOA of 2015 or the conditions that even led to it, um, there is this restraint, there is this risk aversion. Uh, for example, the uh, U.S. has been hit at least, by some estimates, 55, 55 plus times in Iraq and Syria by Iran-backed Shia militia groups. The U.S. has only kinetically responded three times. Imagine a 50, 55 to 3 ratio in any sporting event uh, of your choice. It doesn't look particularly good. And those kind of things can, again, feed into the calculations from the previous question about why Iran would or would not take U.S. deterrence or threats or even other red lines seriously. 
when on a lower theater against a smaller threat, there is more restraint by the US. So there is a clear need to fix this. There is a clear need to actively enforce the oil sanctions Iran has in place. Uh, just recently, uh, the oil sanctions that the US has in place, but is not enforcing against Iran. Apologies there. Um, there is a, a clear divergence, whereas no matter how good the US may be on, on Israel and Hamas and Gaza and what's happening in the Levant, uh, it still seems divorced with respect, in my view, from this larger policy of what is America's ability to contain and deter and roll back the patron, uh, the source of all of these threats. You know, uh, we're not only uh, one month past October 7th, but we're two months past the one year anniversary of nationwide protests in Iran. You know, the Iranian people have been among the longest suffering victims of the Islamic Republic. Uh, the domestic repression is directly tied to the foreign aggression and vice versa. Uh, this stuff is not accidental that the Iranian population since at least 2009 and then every single iteration of anti-regime protests that we've seen nationwide from 2017 to present, the population is chanting, not Gaza, not Lebanon, my life for Iran. Uh, and I think the lack of a policy towards the street to empower that street, whereas you see with respect, unfortunately, many of the horrendous sites coming out in other Western capitals and the streets in the Arab world, this is not the condition. Uh, of, of the Iranian people inside Iran who know what this government is like, who have had their national interest in public good and money sacrificed on the altar of uh, these expansionist and Islamist and genocidal causes like in actu uh, activating death to Israel in deed and not in word uh, over the past few decades. So there has been a, a total lack of willingness to connect the security situation to what the regime in Tehran, the patron of all of these threats, fears most, which is empowering the Iranian people. And I think there, there is significant room uh, for the Biden administration to improve, but also significant room for U.S. partners and allies to improve. I will uh, end this kind of <laughs> polite criticism on this note, <laughs> which is that uh, it's not just uh, helpful words that we've seen uh, and deeds from the Biden administration, but interesting words and interesting deeds the uh, world has seen from European leaders, members of the Five Eyes, um, intelligence sharing network uh, as well. And I think the inability of some folks uh, to call the group that perpetrated uh, the October 7 terror attack and the state that uh, helped underwrite it as terrorists uh, is, is a major problem. And in this sense, in the decade of the 2020s, uh, let me say this, that the Five Eyes countries, plus the European Union, of course, but the Five Eyes countries of the UK, the US, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, should be on the Iran-backed terror threat, seeing the terror threat in 2020, in this decade of the 2020s. And what does that mean in practice? I would love to see all of these jurisdictions be able to formally use their counterterrorism authorities and designate or prescribe the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the fountainhead of all of these other terror groups, as a prescribed terrorist organization. It would be good to see that same prescription be applied against Lebanese Hezbollah, Hamas, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, as well as the, some of the Shiite militias that go between Iraq and Syria and pretend as if that border is not there and continue to attack the U.S. force presence there. This is the goal, to be able to get allies on the same space, to be able to call uh, a spade a spade, and then together to advance towards the target and signal to America's adversaries, whether they be state or non-state actors, to Israel's adversaries, whether they be state or non-state actors, that they cannot divide and conquer different Western capitals anymore. They cannot play this nesting game uh, of hiding behind one label or another.
So you kind of preempted that question about any other kind of the, the leading recommendations that you'd make for either kind of the, the allied governments, both in the UK and the US. And I hear the message about the, uh, the prescription of the IRGC. Is there anything else you think in the day with a UK centric focus um, the British government could be doing more of? Uh, well, quite uh, recently, actually, there has been a, a report uh, of the Foreign Office looking to develop an entirely new Iran-based uh, sanctions uh, program. Uh, I'd love to see that passed. I'd love to see that used. Um, I'd love to see the Magnitsky authorities, uh, which, again, many of these same countries have, uh, these jurisdictions have. I'd love to see that more aggressively embraced against the, the kleptocratic leadership in Tehran, uh, you know, Multilateral penalties are good, especially because of the diplomatic and political message they send. But I'd also like to see multi uh, countries that do have a more of a diplomatic presence in the Middle East than the U.S. may have to be able to leverage that uh, to talk truth to power and to not be afraid to pull punches. I think for Washington in the heartland of the region between Iraq and Syria, the entire reason the Islamic Republic has opened up a second front is because it is trying to play up American concerns about a wider war. Uh, the U.S. has to essentially sack those concerns. Uh, it has to respond against arsenals and weapon storages and depots. It has to strike arsenals and weapon storages and depots of these Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria entirely separate from it being uh, attacked uh, these 55 plus times. And when it is indeed attacked, it has to respond against the point of origin. I think President Biden, by open source public counts, has at least seven times since he has entered office uh, had to strike uh, Syria. He hasn't struck Iraq, really, with the exception of one time when there was a cross-border raid in 2021, if I'm not mistaken. But the point of origin for many of these attacks is Syria, and nearly half of these 55 strikes is Iraq, and nearly half of these 55 strikes is also coming from Iraq. And just one last question, if I can, just to focus in on a specific area of Israeli concern. Um, and we mentioned before about kind of this, uh, the, the provocations on the border by Hezbollah from the north. But Israel, Israeli, Israeli society is looks, having learned the lessons very, very badly from October the 7th, looks with great concern at the elite Radwan forces on the borders there. And the question is whether there will have to be an open, an open front there to, to tackle that threat. But I want to ask you specifically about a diplomatic role that we see U.S. diplomats in in partnership with the French also trying to uh, persuade and push for Hezbollah to be moved further north beyond the Litani River. Um, we haven't seen any success in that for a decade and a half. Do you have any confidence that diplomacy can win out and, uh, and, and, and prevent a further escalation on the Lebanese border? I don't have confidence that it can win out. But I do have confidence that it is a tool that can should and continue uh, and, and must indeed continue uh, to function as a, as a tunnel or a medium to deliver these stern warnings about where Hezbollah can and can't be permitted to operate from, as well as clear thresholds for the use of force for any actor to make sure that Iran's chief proxy in Levant remains as much in the sidelines uh, as possible. My ultimate fear here, of course, is that it is not those dipl those diplomatic messages that is thus far restraining Hezbollah. It may not even be some of the military posture posturing of Israel that is thus far restraining Hezbollah. It is simply because both the local actor and the foreign patron haven't seen the need yet to have to sacrifice those forces to bail out 
uh, Hamas in Gaza. The open question is, the more successful the IDF is, at what point might this tempt either different local actor considerations in Lebanon or foreign patron considerations in Tehran to change uh, that new normal uh, between Israel and Hezbollah in the short term uh, and, and, and render that force much more aggressive? Uh, I wonder if that is something they're considering. Um, but it's one that I wonder about for now. But in, in, in the medium, I don't, in the medium term at least, I don't expect uh, you know, diplomacy to be able to do that heavy lifting. I simply see it in, in this time as a medium to continue to communicate some of these messages. And again, some of these messages, uh, maybe I'll pivot to the US side again, are not always the most helpfully communicated uh, given uh, facts on the ground. Uh, it would be unhelpful if messages undo a military action through political rhetoric, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, the second press, the second time that the U.S. used force since October seventh against Iran-backed militias uh, in Syria, uh, it issued a press release that, in essence, drowned out the the use of the military tool. And the only kind of cautionary note I would say for for folks who are still interested in engaging uh, U.S. France or U.S. others to deliver some of these messages is just to be cautious to not drown out. Uh, the real-world military effects that we're seeing. Um... Thank you. And sorry, I've got one more one more question, if you don't mind. Um, just to try and end on a on a slightly more positive note, um, that of course the conversation for the majority of this year, up and before, up and leading up to October the seventh, was really about the moves towards um, further uh, in, engaging with uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel and, and normalization of ties. Do you still see that in the medium term on the agenda? And do you think that, uh, that October the 7th is beyond the kind of the, 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 the pro forma rhetoric that comes out from some of the Arab countries by necessity, that there's still a move, an alliance between Israel and the pragmatic uh, Sunni world that can build that alliance? I still see the uh, obvious shared and overlapping strategic and political interest in warming and building uh, those ties. Uh, the question is, uh, how much did the Islamic Republic know the Arab street better than Israel and better than America? And how much can it instrumentally use the Arab street against some of those Arab states? It's an open question right now. Uh, you saw, for instance, in the first ever round of Houthi long-range strike fire, which included ballistic missiles and suicide drones and land attack cruise missiles, that Saudi Arabia, in fact, did lend a hand to helping the U.S. intercept some of those missiles which were bound to Israel. Quiet, private, uh, but on the other side, you know, still balancing, having uh, Iran's president come to that historic summit, the OIC uh, in Riyadh, where he met uh, with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS uh, of, of the kingdom. But then again, the Saudis working to push away talk of a potential boycott coming out of a resolution out of that body, but also still nonetheless calling for a ceasefire publicly several times uh, at the UN. All this stuff means that it's two steps forward, one step back, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. Every single day with every single uh, different news cycle with a different image coming out of Gaza, it'll be that cycle of two steps forward, one back, or, or, in, uh, or in reverse or in the opposite direction. But I think overwhelmingly, uh, that shared strategic interest by some of these states uh, is still there. Um, and that's something to keep in mind. And it might be some room for cautious optimism, uh, but a cautious optimism that should not be squandered. 
Sure. Well, listen, at this point, cautious optimism is we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Um, Beckham, thank you so much for your for your time and your fantastic, incisive analysis. Most appreciated. And uh, we look forward to uh, hopefully calling on you again in the future to share a, a further update. But thanks very much for now. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.